Again, that's 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. And the title is The Word of God. So if you found your places, this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the presence entrance of the cave. And behold, there was a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, if we've not had the privilege of meeting yet. Before we dive into our passage today, 
I want to circle back around and talk a little bit more about the picnic for just a moment. This is one of those activities at Renewal that we see as serving two purposes. Now, obviously, first, the first one is so that we can actually just be together. It's a fellowship time. And if you think about this in sort of what I would argue are biblical terms, this is something that Jesus died in order for us to join in. He died so that we can actually be part of the people of God, the community of God, a redeemed community that's going to last for all eternity. And so you're, we're trying to give just a little bit of taste of what that's like in two weeks from now. So what am I doing? I'm asking you to make time for this, to put it in your calendar. This is part of what it means to live out our lives as brothers and sisters together. It's going to be food, going to be fun, time to play together, time to talk together, frisbee football as Nick was saying earlier, I do have to say, however, that I'm not allowed to play, or I should say that Sally won't let me play. If you're relatively new to renewal, uh, I messed up my knee playing basketball at a church picnic about a year ago and uh, ended up with knee surgery. Sally literally told me yesterday, I'm putting my foot down this year. You're not allowed to play any of the games because I'm not ready for another surgery. I asked her to let me know when she would be ready. Seriously, what I'm really looking for is a volunteer to distract her while I... Please come out. Please enjoy yourself. And that's one part of what we're trying to do in two weeks. Second thing, however, there are people in this congregation whose first introduction to us came through a picnic. This is an opportunity then not just for us, it's also an opportunity for other people to experience us as a community. So I want to be uh, just as strong as when I urged you to put this in your calendar. Think about someone that you might consider inviting. Or if there isn't anyone who comes to mind, think about uh, who you might pray for that the Lord would open up an opportunity for you to invite. Okay, two weeks from now. For today, we're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series where we're studying the attributes of God, the characteristics of God. And we've been noticing that those attributes are essential for living well. That when we remember who God is, we respond well to this world. When we forget who God is, our responses tend to go off on extremes. We wind up being unhelpful to ourselves, unhelpful to other people. Today we're looking at one of Israel's greatest prophets, Elijah, who served during a particularly rough season for Israel. It was a time when Israel had abandoned God and Elijah was calling them back to God. Now Elijah was a faithful prophet. He was one who was incredibly significant for Israel's history. He's one of the two prophets that you actually find in the Gospels. Moses and Elijah both were speaking with Jesus, talking with him about his upcoming death. But Elijah is a prophet in this chapter who's deeply broken. When you ask God to take your life, that's an extreme response to life. Life feels just overwhelming. You can't imagine going on. And it's a mo moment for him of despair where he has no hope given what he sees and he'd rather just be done with it all. And in that moment, Elijah's forgotten something about God, something that God then reminds him of later. And to get to what he's forgotten, we're going to start first with Elijah, and we're going to ask first, what is it that upsets him? Second, what is it that breaks him? And then third, how does God respond to him? 
what upsets him, what breaks him, I'm going to suggest those are different, and then how does God respond to him? Now, to understand what upsets him, you need to keep chapter 18 in the back of your mind. Chapter 18 is all about a contest. On the one side are the 450 prophets of Baal, and on the other, there's just this one prophet, Elijah. Now, why is it only him? Because Queen Jezebel has been killing off all the prophets of the Lord. And she's been so effective that chapter 18, 22, Elijah says, I'm the only one left. So it's a contest where the odds are stacked, 450 to 1. And what's being debated in this contest is, who is God? Who's the real God? Is he this one called Baal? Is that what God is like? Is that what divinity, divine nature, divine character, is that what he's like? Is what Baal values most important than for what we value? Does the way that he lives inform the way that we live? Is Baal the real God, or is this other, the Lord God? This one who says that he loves us so much that he delivered Israel from slavery, that he gave his commands, his wisdom, so that we could live well in this world, so that who brought Israel to live out his ways with him and with each other. Who's the real God? And which one dictates our lives? Now, Israel, chapter 18, 21, has been wavering between the two. They're confused, unable to settle on who is God, who should we worship, who do we listen to, how do we make this decision? And so there's a contest in chapter 18. Each side was to build an altar, arrange a sacrifice, but not light the fire. And they were then to call on their God, and the one who answers by sending fire down from heaven is clearly the real God. Now, Baal, sorry, Elijah lets the Baal prophets go first, and they try all day. They tried hard. They shouted. They danced. They slashed themselves. They're sacrificing their own blood. Got very emotional, very exercised, and nothing happened. Elijah then built an altar and prepared a sacrifice. Then he does something really odd. He just drenches it with water over and over and over, so there's no chance of anything igniting. And then he quietly asks God to show that he is the real God. Fire falls from heaven, it burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, the puddled water. And everyone sees this and declares that the Lord is God. Elijah then oversaw the slaughter of the first false prophets, and he sends King Ahab back to his home. Okay, that's chapter 18. Hold that in the back of your head. It's a great demonstration of the power of God for the people of God through the prophet of God. Chapter 19, Elijah's now running. And the lens that you use, the interpretive grid through which you look to understand why he's running is crucial. Because not only does your lens, your grid, the way you approach this passage, tell you whether the running is good or bad, but it tells you that if it's bad running, then here's what Elijah needs, and it tells you then what God has to do to give him what he needs, which then has something to do with you. Now, if you look at this passage through a modern lens, let me say it this way, through a psychological filter that prioritizes the self to what goes into the makeup of the self, then you'll conclude that this is bad running. 
and that something has gone wrong inside of Elijah. And you'll think to yourself, okay, here's a bold, courageous man in chapter 18 who's running in chapter 19. How on earth did that happen? Something must have snapped. And a lot of people look at this chapter through that lens. A lot of commentary writers, like Ronald Wallace, who writes, quote, Elijah cracked up. We see the man who had been the most spectacular political success suddenly sink into a mood of despondency and gloom, unquote. Or Bernard Robinson, who concludes that, quote, the panic that came over him when Jezebel issued her threat against his life has punctured his inflated image of himself, unquote. Or Donald Weissman, who believes that Elijah, quote, exhibited symptoms of manic depression, wishing for death, together with loss of appetite and inability to manage and with excessive self-pity, unquote. Now, what are they doing? That's just several. What are they doing? They're viewing what Elijah does as the product of someone who is emotionally, physically wrung out from the previous day. Someone who's lost it, had a bit of a psychotic break, is now controlled by fear, full of self-pity, who runs off to whine to God and who God then tries to help by saying, it's okay, you're really not all alone, here's some help. And I have to confess that I have read this chapter through that lens and that by doing so, I've missed the bigger picture of what God is actually doing here. Because if you read it through that particular interpretive lens, you end up feeling bad for Elijah, you know, kind of like, oh, poor man, he, he's, he's overworked, and, and he really needs a break. Which leads you then, leaves you then, with relatively little personal application, like, okay, uh, I guess I shouldn't overinvest in ministry. I probably should make sure, make sure that I've got some margins in life. That seems like a really odd point for God to make in the middle of the history of the book of Kings. There's a bigger problem, though. That way of looking at the story completely ignores that Elijah didn't do anything wrong in chapter 18. Instead, in chapter 18, he acted as God's representative to a faithless nation by doing exactly what God gave him to do. So if you read chapter 19 as some kind of emotional breakdown, you have to conclude that the breakdown is what? It's God's fault that God gave him too much to do, which then messes with your understanding of who God is and how God treats his people, and especially of how he'll treat you. It really messes with your head when he runs out to the mountain of God and God shows this overworked guy on the edge, three incredibly powerful kinds of experiences. You think, man, you, you wouldn't do that to somebody who is teetering but I guess God does. It, 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 it messes with how you view God. You don't find that kind of God in the rest of Scripture. Jesus was known as somebody who would not break a bruised reed, would not snuff out a smoldering wick. So how did we end up then with this strange, contradictory take on God? It's because this way of looking at the account is not the interpretive grid that Scripture uses to understand what's happening with Elijah. Scripture has a very different way of understanding what's going on here. And the lens that you use makes a difference, makes a huge difference to what you then take away from this passage. Now, I've debated this next section. I, I, I need to take a little aside here 
Because having said all that, you might be tempted to think that I'm saying Scripture doesn't care about your inner life or that it has nothing to say about a person's psychology or that all God cares about is what you do. That's not what I'm saying and nothing could actually be further from the truth. You realize as you read the Bible that modern society did not discover that there are inner realms to a person. Our modern world has created the discipline of, society, of psychology, but it didn't invent thinking about the self as a self. You go back to the book of Psalms, and you realize that God has always been concerned that we understand what's going on inside of ourselves. He cares deeply about the deep inner workings of a person. And he knows that the nature of this world is such that we can easily respond to it, as you read the Psalms, by being depressed, being anxious, fearful, crushed, burned out, stressed. Our modern world did not discover those things, nor was the modern world the first to put words and definitions to what's going on internally. God did all of that long ago. And as you read the book of Psalms, or you read the letters of Paul, for that matter, you learn that God invites us to think about what is going on inside, to name those things, to talk with him about them. You don't find a God who wants you just to stuff how you feel or ignore what we're going through, but that he wants us to bring those things to him. And in that sense, Scripture offers a deep look at the rich interior life of a person. There is a difference, however, between Scripture and the modern age. Because our world looks at the things that God looks at, but it does so through a different interpretive lens, different way of understanding them. A way that says, if we're to be healthy internally, emotionally, psychologically, then what has to change is not us, but the larger world. That if you respond to life in unhealthy ways, then the cause of that unhealth is what? It's outside of you. That you're basically a decent person who just got caught up in things that are not good. And since your fundamental nature is right, what you need are to make changes to your larger world so that you are bringing that larger world into harmony with who you are. Now, God is not harsh, but he does have a different approach. One that says, actually, you can have joy and peace, fullness, in the middle of really hard times, in the middle of people ganging up on you, in times where you are facing suffering in whatever form it comes, that those external things are very real, very hurtful, but they do not control your reactions. Instead, you can respond in positive ways to those negative things. Now again, given the world that we live in, please be careful how you hear me. I did not say that you are responsible for what's happening to you. I didn't say that it's really okay that bad things are happening to you or that it doesn't matter what happens to you or that you should just put up with it, not try to change this world, not try to impact it. I didn't say any of that because Scripture doesn't say that. What Psalms and the rest of Scripture says is that your response to this world is not determined by what happens to you. It's not caused by what happens to you. But that your response comes from within you. You can think here about Jesus. Long before he was arrested and murdered, he was hated, mocked, ridiculed throughout his entire ministry life. 
But despite being so badly mistreated, what did he do? He continued to extend himself outwardly to other people for their sake, out of love for them, even when they didn't love him. And so you read the life of Jesus, you never find him responding to anyone with bitterness, never trying to get back at someone for how they treated him. And you don't see him retreating, withdrawing from everybody, pulling away in fear, just saying nice things to keep everybody happy. Instead, you hear him say things that are hard to hear. But when he does, it's clear that he's doing it for the other person's sake, not because he's fed up. Now, why is that? Why does he not return evil? Why does he not respond to evil with evil? It's because what determines your response to living in a hard, hateful world where you suffer is not what you experience outside yourself, but it's in finding a connection with God, tapping into a source of spiritual power that aligns you with what? That aligns you with God. Very different understanding of the world than you find in our modern society. And so scripture explores the inner workings of who you are, but it does so with a different intention than our world does. In Scripture, the desire to understand the inner workings of the self is so that you get a better sense of how do I realign with the God who rules over this larger world? What are you trying to do? You're trying to bring yourself into harmony with his greater reality, trying to realign yourself so that you're not paralyzed by your sufferings, so that you're not responding in ways that are out of control. It's to realign you so that you do respond but you respond in ways that God supports, in ways that he empowers, in ways that can be redemptive rather than ways that he has to then later undo, in ways that can bring wholeness rather than in ways that complicate the suffering that you're already going through. There's a very long aside because I'm trying to say to you, you have to be careful how you read 1 Kings chapter 19. You have to be careful how you read anything in Scripture. You have to allow not the larger cultural world that you grew up in to shape how you read Scripture. You have to allow Scripture to reshape you so that you go back out into the larger culture. How do you do that? First, take a look here at how long the chapter is you get a full chapter on a single particular episode in the life of Elijah. In that sense, what you're looking at is an account that is out of proportion to his life. He did a lot of living that you never hear about. You hear about this one. That tells you something is happening here that's a very important moment in his life. But it's also a really important moment in the life of Israel. The book of First and Second Kings are actually one book, 47 chapters long, they span the history of Israel's monarchy from right after the time of King David to when Israel went into exile, roughly 400 years. Of those 47 chapters, Elijah and Elisha figure prominently in 12. It's about 25% of the book, which tells you what? This is a really important time in the life of Israel. What does that mean then as you think about chapter 19? It means it's probably more than an interesting diversion into the inner workings of one individual's mental makeup. Something else is going on here. Something that has to do 
with the plan of God in order to rescue his world from sin and darkness. We've talked about this before in terms of the phrase redemptive history, that God is doing something in history to redeem all of life. And that means that you have to understand this big picture first before you can then say, well, this is how it impacts any one individual, even if that individual is Elijah the prophet. Now, that larger plan becomes even more prominent when you realize how many parallels there are between this chapter and the time when Moses met God on Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. Now, first parallel. Moses and Elijah met with God on the same mountain. Different name, same mountain. In Moses' day, God sustained Israel with food and water in the wilderness while they traveled to the mountain like he did for Elijah. Moses was on the mountain for how long? For 40 days. Same amount of time that it took Elijah to get to the mountain. Both men stand in the presence of God. Both experience wind, earthquake, fire. Both find shelter there. Moses in the cleft of a rock, Elijah in a cave. Both avoid seeing God fully. While God speaks to both of them, you start to realize, man, there's more going on here than a single prophet who's all worn out. Something is happening here that's really important for the people of God. If all that's true, why then do people write about this? Ignore all of that and speculate about Elijah having some kind of internal meltdown. A meltdown that's not mentioned in the text, but that has to be imported from the outside. Much of it has to do with reading fear as the overriding concern of the passage. That chapter 19 to, after God's display in chapter 18, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, one of the Baal prophets, by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. We read that, and we assume that we know what Elijah is afraid of. We assume that he's afraid of Jezebel, that he's afraid she's going to kill him, and so he suddenly loses all of the courage that he had the day before, standing up in front of 450 prophets and all the rest of Israel. We figure, oh, he, he just lost all of that and runs away. Now, if you think about it, that explanation doesn't make a lot of sense. Because in the very next verse, verse 4, Elijah asks God that he might what? That he might die. Which means what? He's not afraid of death. He actually wants it, asks for it. But he wants it from God's hand, not Jezebel's. He's not afraid of dying. He's concerned over who does the killing. That's what matters to him. See, if all he wanted to do was die, to just quit because he's overwhelmed, there's no need to run. <laughs> just stay where you are, and Jezebel will take care of that. He runs not because he's afraid of dying, but because he doesn't want Jezebel to get the credit for his death. Now, why is that? You have to think here of the optics. Before chapter 18, Jezebel has been killing all of the prophets of the Lord. She's been rooting them out, wiping all of them out, trying to wipe out the worship of God in Israel. Chapter 18, in front of all of the people, Elijah, the representative of the Lord, roots out and kills 
all the prophets of Baal. So at this moment, which God is credited as being more powerful? It's the Lord. With only one prophet left, he's wiped out the representatives of Baal. And he shows that he doesn't need the entire forces of a nation at his disposal. Instead, he can save his people by one just as easily as he can save them by many. Clearly demonstrated that he is the one true God. But now, if Jezebel kills Elijah, then the perception swings back to Baal being more powerful. And so Elijah runs. It's fine to lose his life to the Lord, but not to Jezebel. You realize this is not about being afraid for his life. It's about being concerned for who Israel sees as being in charge. Elijah is not upset about the imminent threat to his life. He has lived with that from when Jezebel started her program. He's upset about the Lord's reputation in Israel with how Israel sees and treats the Lord. And that gets underlined later on when he's out at the mountain and he makes his complaint to the Lord. God asks, verse 10, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That's not self-pity. You will only interpret that as self-pitying if you think that Elijah is controlled by fear. It's not self-pity. What is that? That's an indictment of Israel. What is it that brought Elijah out here to the mountain of God? He is bringing a charge against Israel. A charge that they have rejected the covenant that God made with them. Where? On this mountain. This is where God made a covenant with Israel. Elijah charges Israel with not wanting the relationship that God longed to have with them. And so they've what? They've thrown down his altars refused his offer of forgiveness. They've killed his prophets, or they at least have allowed the murder of his prophets. So it only Elijah's left, and they're coming for him now too. That's not self-pity. That's a cold, hard rehearsal of the facts. And so the prophet here is acting as God's lawyer, and he's charging Israel with apostasy, with ignoring the word of God that God gave to them on this mountain. Think, okay, but wait, wasn't that all true before? <laughs> that God had already rejected, that Israel had already rejected God? Why does Elijah come here now with this charge when he could have come earlier? It's because of the aftermath of chapter 18. Before chapter 18, the people wavered between two opinions. Is Baal God or is the Lord God? In that sense, they were confused. But all that's changed now. It's very clear that the Lord is God. And it's equally clear that having seen the Lord, that the people don't want him. King Ahab went back home, reported everything to Jezebel that had happened, and she looks at him and does not repent. She hears what happened and does not convert like she should have, like God gave her the chance to. Instead, she doubles down. She basically says to Ahab, so? 
So what? Okay, fire came down from heaven. That changes nothing. We still worship Baal, which means we stay the course, which means Elijah has to die. And the people go along with it. They don't rise up to remove Jezebel, Baal's representative. And when Elijah sees that, verse 3, he runs because he knows that the people will let Jezebel get away with removing him, just like they've let her get away with removing and killing all the other prophets of the Lord. What is it that upsets him? It's not her threat. That's already been in place for years. What upsets him is Israel's hardness of heart. It's that in seeing the Lord clearly for who he is, they still want a different God, one with different values, different thoughts, different ideas about how life ought to be lived. And so Elijah looks at Israel's unrepentant paganism, Jezebel's continuing power over Israel, and he sees all that and he's deeply upset, grieved. And so he goes to indict Israel before the Lord. And now here's where the passage presses itself into your life and mine by asking, are you and I upset by what upsets Elijah? Are you and I upset for the people around us that they've abandoned God's covenant, that they don't take a relationship with him seriously, that they've torn down his altars, that they make no attempt to connect with him, that they've killed his prophets, marginalized the voices of God who would speak into their worlds, and that right now they're looking to kill, to cancel the voices that remain. Is that what upsets you? And I have to be honest, it's so much easier to be upset with people for how they impact me than to be upset for the danger that they put themselves in with the Lord. Think about your spouse, your roommate, your child, maybe somebody at work. Can you remember the last time that they hurt you, insulted you, overlooked you, disrespected you, and what upset you was the danger that they put themselves in with the Lord by doing that to you? Isn't it so much easier to be upset with the way that they've affected you? Think about it for just a moment, though. You realize, wow, they, 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 they really have done something much worse. Why should they have treated you better than they did? Isn't it because they have an obligation to the Lord? God tells them, everyone on earth, to love their neighbor as themselves, to love you as themselves. You don't tell them that, command them to do that, hold them accountable for how they treat you. God does. God commands and he judges whether or not any of those people obey his commands. They are responsible primarily to him, not to you. So in the moment when they don't love you as themselves, what they're really doing is refusing to obey him. Yes, you're affected. You may have even been badly affected. But in sinning against you, they've sinned that much more against the Lord put themselves in much greater danger with him than they have with you. But does that enter your mind in those moments when you're hurt by someone? Is that greater danger what grips you, what upsets you, what causes you to grieve, or is what is most prominent what they've done to you? Are you more upset with what they've done with you, done to you, 
or with their apostasy in turning from the Lord. For Elijah, it's his people's apostasy. It upsets him deeply. And the question in this passage is, does it upset you just as deeply? That's point one. It upsets him. Point two, however, it over upsets him. There's something about all of this that breaks him. You hear that in his desire to die. Clearly not a healthy approach to life. There's something here, let me say it this way, that upsets him too much. We've been saying that throughout this study this fall, that there are times when our response to life is extreme. When we're not only upset about something that should upset us, but when we're too upset. In this case, upset to where we despair. So you think, okay, well, what is it for Elijah? What pushes him over the edge? And the hint comes in a combination of two things here. First, in what Elijah says to God, and then second, in what God says to Elijah, or rather, in what God doesn't say to him. We'll take them one at a time. What does Elijah say to God? Verse 4, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm no better than my father's. There's something about what he's done that he thinks is just like all of those who have gone before him. He has ended up with the same track record that all of those fathers did, and he thinks that because he's in the same place, that God should just take him out. Now again, think about where we are in the history of God's dealings with his people. He sent prophets to them who preached faithfully, and yet Israel continued to slide away from God. They didn't return to him. Elijah looks here at what just happened in chapter 19 after he confronted Israel with the one true God in the most powerful way that he knows possible, and he realizes it had absolutely no impact on the hearts and the minds of people. And his conclusion is what? That he's ineffective in the kingdom of God. Just like all of the other prophets who have gone before him. That he has not made a dent in Israel's hard-heartedness. And he extrapolates from that conclusion, there's no good reason for God to keep him around. And that's when you realize that Elijah expected Israel to change based on the demonstration of God's superiority through his ministry. He expected that the power encounter of chapter 18 would change Israel, that they would now swing wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now, how do you know that that's in his head when he says that he's no better than those who have come before him? Here's the second hint. Think about what God does. He tells Elijah when he's up on Mount Horeb, verse 11, to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Elijah expects that he's about to go out and meet God. He goes out, the Lord passes by, but there's something odd about the presence of God. Great wind comes up that shatters the rocks before the Lord, but God's not in the wind, and Elijah knows it. There's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake, followed by a fire, God's not in that either. What is going on here? Elijah is experiencing more power encounters 
one right after the other, similar to what happened when fire came out of heaven and burned up the sacrifice and everything else. And yet none of these demonstrations have anything to do with God. This is not how God works to rescue his people. Doesn't use power encounters to win minds and transform hearts. They are not the means that God uses to rescue his prophet. But they are the means by which Elijah expected he would do the job. He thought the power demonstration of chapter 18 that he oversaw would be enough to convert people. And it wasn't. And God here in chapter 19 is saying, that's not how I work. External manifestations of miraculous power and might are not the transformative work that my people need. Jezebel heard about it, didn't change her, did not change the rest of Israel. And renewal, you and I have to hear this. We have to hear that external things don't change people. We have to hear that because it's so easy to rely on all those external things. So easy to think that education will change people. <laughs> that if they just have a good presentation of the facts, if Jezebel just has a good presentation of the facts, that'll be enough to change hearts. And it's not. Or to think that the right community influences will change people. If we just get people into church or we just get our kids into youth group, that that will be enough to change hearts. And it's not. Or if we can just get the right laws passed in our country, then people will see and love the God who made the good laws, and, and that won't be enough either. None of that changes people. Not even miracles. Jesus, in Luke 16, told a parable about a man who ended up in hell. And this man asked Abraham to send someone from heaven to return to his brothers to warn them so that they would escape the torment that he was in. Jesus has Abraham say, Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What did Jesus just say through his parable? He does not believe that miracles, power encounters on their own will change people's hearts. Why is Elijah broken? It's because he's overstepped. <laughs> he wrongly believed that it, it was his responsibility through his efforts to minister, to make people embrace who God is and what he's doing. And Elijah has judged himself, his service, by people's response to his ministry. He's been faithful, done everything that God wanted him to do, but his conclusion is what? He failed because people didn't convert. And he forgot that he's only the messenger. That it really was enough for him just to be faithful. It's so hard to remember that. So hard to realize that your child's choices in life are not your responsibility. That your calling at work in your neighborhood is to proclaim Christ, not convince people to embrace him. That God never tells you to make people feel loved tells you to love, to offer love to those around you. He never says it's your responsibility to make anyone feel a certain way. Forget that you're the messenger, however, and you'll take on too much responsibility for how people respond, and it will crush you, just like it's crushed Elijah. He forgot that God is the heart changer. And so he runs away broken, 
rightly upset over Israel's faithlessness, but he's gone too far, and he ends up in despair over Israel's unfaithfulness. Thankfully, point three, God is not in despair, not even over his prophet. Notice here quickly his tenderness. Verse five, he feeds Elijah, lets him rest. Verse seven, feeds him again. God knows his prophet is worn out, and that matters to God, even if Elijah's taken too much on his own shoulders, worn himself out. And God gives Elijah an opportunity to talk. Elijah says, I'm all alone, which means what? He has no one to share his burden with, and God gives him an invitation to share. He asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah needed all of that. When you're past your breaking point, sometimes you need a break, and God gives him that. But God does not think that a simple break is going to make everything all better. Elijah also needs counsel. He needs input, godly input, needs to be confronted, gently challenged where he's gone off the rails, and he needs to be redirected back to what's true. Why is that? Because it's not love to leave him where he is. Not love to let him think that the way that he's organizing the world is going to lead to a good outcome when it won't. Now make sure you heard the combination here. God does speak truth to Elijah. Truth that might be hard to hear, certainly a rebuke to him, even if it's gentle. But God does so from within the context of a caring relationship, one where he's restored Elijah physically. You need to have both. You need support in your life, and you need counsel. You need relationship and truth. You need love and truth. The two of them come together. It's not enough to have one or the other. Support without input does not give you a new pathway for living. It leaves you stuck where you are. Truth without relationship, without love, almost impossible to receive. God gives both. This is who our God is. God gives both because Elijah needs both. So what does Elijah need to know? He needs to know how God does work in the world. Okay, it's not through power encounters, but what is it? It's by his voice. It's this whisper that captures Elijah's attention. When God speaks, that's when Elijah knows that he's in the presence of God. That's when he hides his face, goes out to stand in God's presence. This is how God works in his world. It's through his word. It's how God has always worked. It's through his word, his speaking, that the world came to be. It's through his word that he now rules this world and guides it where he wants it to go. It was on this mountain when God used his voice to make a covenant with his people. He spoke that covenant into being, forming a relationship that wasn't there before, so that through that relationship he would govern his world. That it would be through that relationship that he would rescue the world from evil. It's now from this mountain that God continues to rule by his, world, by his word, to continue to guide human history by what he says. And so it's through his word that God appoints people to carry out his judgment on his people by the sword for their apostasy. It's by his word that he appoints Hazael and Jehu as new rulers over Syria and Israel. And God intends to keep ruling the world through his word. So he appoints Elisha to continue Elijah's work. 
to be someone who's going to keep speaking God's word to his people, calling them back to himself. It's through his word that God preserves a faithful remnant for himself, promises to leave 7,000 faithful people for himself. And he's saying there that there will always be faithful people to carry out his plans, even in the most apostate settings, because he said so. God does act in this world to bring about his plans, not with displays of power, but with and through his word. What's that mean for us? If you don't know God's word or you don't live by it, if you let yourself forget what you know about God or about his purposes, or if you don't know them to start with, you will still live. You'll still think things. You'll still make decisions. You'll still live, but you will be living by something other than how God himself lives. And so Jezebel and the Israelites had an alternative world and life view, one where Baal dictated their values and their goals. Elijah knew the Lord, but he tried to live by an alternative method than what the Lord uses, one where power displays were preeminent. God's way is quieter. It's not as hip and not as flashy as what our modern world would like. But his word is what dictates what goes on in this world. And it determines where this world is headed. Ignore his word. Don't study it. Don't drink it in. Don't let it change who you are and what you want out of life. And you'll find yourself at odds with God. You'll find yourself working at cross purposes to him and you will miss out on the transforming power of his word in you. And in closing, that's why we need Jesus. Because that's me. That's you. We have all rejected God's word at one time or another. We've all put ourselves in danger of being judged by God, of coming under the sword of his judgment. And we've done that because we all have the same problem, the problem that God's people have always had, a problem that goes all the way back to our first parents, to Adam and Eve, who rejected the word of God, the voice of God. They listened to the serpent instead of God. And all of their descendants do the same thing now. It's in our DNA our default setting is to listen to anything but the word of God. And so Jesus came to earth. Jesus, the one who did many miracles to show who he was, who told people that even if you don't believe my words, John 10, 38, believe the miracles, the power encounters rightly understood should have directed people clearly to who Jesus is, just like Elijah's should have showed people who God is. And yet, John 12, 37, the people did not believe. Instead, they tried to kill Christ, just like people did with Elijah. Only eventually they succeeded, which ironically is why Jesus came in the first place. John tells us, chapter 114, that Jesus was the word of God, that when you heard him speak, you heard God's voice. But that he, the word of God, became flesh. Why is that? Because as a human being on the hill of Golgotha, Jesus could do something that the Word of God could not do on Mount Horeb. And that was that he could die. And that he could die alone. There was no faithful remnant who stood with him. Died alone. Even God forsook him. And he died so that he could take your place and mine. So that he could stand under the sword of judgment for every time that you and I have rejected the Word of God the judgment that you and I deserved, so that Jesus could be killed in our place, so that his word could now live inside of us. 
That's why Jesus came. You need the word of God. The word of God can only live in you when all the evil is out. That's what Jesus came to do.